marriage. <laughs> marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. I'll stop there. Those of you who have heard that before know what it's from the movie Princess Bride. The rest of you just think I'm nuts, and that's okay. (laughs) Either way, we have come together today to talk about marriage, or as we would say, marriage. And we're going to hear Jesus deal with the issue of marriage today as only... He can, because he, Jesus, is the God-man. And let me say right off the bat that it's going to be incredibly important to understand that. We've said in our previous sermons, messages, steps through the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is speaking to his disciples to help them understand the specifics of the kingdom of heaven. John Stott called it the Christian counterculture that Jesus is elaborating on here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a great way to explain what Jesus is explaining. Jesus had come, as Matthew has already worked hard to show, Jesus had come as the king, the promised king, Israel's long-awaited king who would fill David's throne forever. Not through an election cycle, not through one lifetime, but forever. Jesus is the forever king of God's people and of God's kingdom. And as such, he, he is the final authoritative voice for all things pertaining to God, all things pertaining to God's law, all things pertaining to God's kingdom, and all things pertaining to God's people, which includes us if we are His. And in establishing a different way of thinking and living, Jesus was calling His people to be different. To be counter to the culture around them. Even, probably especially, different than the religious Jews of His day. Jesus walked His disciples through the Beatitudes we saw at the beginning of chapter 5. Describing true blessedness as what is seen in the poor, the meek, the hungry, and the persecuted. And then he told these blessed wretches that they were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he turned his attention and theirs to the law of God. And he made it clear that he had not come to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it, to fill it full. And then he started getting into particulars about how the scribes and the teachers of the law of their day had gotten it wrong and how the scribes and the teachers of the law for generations had gotten it wrong. Focusing on the bare minimum of issues like murder and adultery while missing the heart and intent of these laws which encompassed anger and lust respectfully. Now today he turns the laser focus of his teaching onto the issue of divorce. Any guesses on how this is going to go? (laughs) Well, if the last two messages are any indication, we're in for hardcore truth. Uncompromising truth. But remember, 
Who is speaking? Not me. These are the words of Jesus. We sang this morning that He's worthy and He's King of kings. He's the root of David. And He conquered the grave. And that He's worthy. We are hearing this morning from God Himself. From the King of all kings. We are hearing from the mouth of the author concerning what He meant when He gave the law those thousand plus years before He was speaking. Now... Let me say up front, last week we addressed the kids and the parents about the issue of lust. And I know that this subject today, when we talk about marriage, divorce, remarriage, that can be really touchy. I understand that. I don't know everybody's story here. I don't know where you came from. And I don't know what you're going through right now. And I don't know where you may be headed. And I do not want to come across this morning... As though, as though I'm speaking callously or coldly about highly emotional issues like this. The biblical command is to speak the truth in love. And that's my hope and my goal today. And by the power of the Spirit, that's what I intend to do. I don't want to apologize for either what the Lord says, and I don't want to apologize for your situation whatever that might be. I want to lovingly pursue the purest doctrine that we can pursue for two reasons. And what are those reasons? It's the same reason we do everything we do for our good and for God's glory. We go to the Bible to seek truth. We go to the Bible to get God's perspective. And now we need to receive what He says as what is best for us and what is best for His purposes. So, as we approach our passage today, please keep that in mind. I'm not your judge. Okay? I'm not here to pass judgment on you and tell you you're right or wrong. I'm here to point you to the words of Jesus, who is the judge, and to point you to Him to find grace in your time of need. So, our passage today is a short one. It's two big verses, but man, it's dense. And it sends us on a journey through the Bible to see what else is said on our subject. And we're not going to cover everything. There's just no way. John MacArthur preached four hour-long messages on these two verses. I wouldn't attempt that, but it just tells you how much information we need to cover to get the full spectrum of what we're talking about today. So if you would, stand as we read the very words of God from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 31 and 32. Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. God, we surely... Need your help this morning. And we always do when we approach your word. These words are spiritually appraised. And they are not up to, up for private interpretation. But your Holy Spirit will give us understanding. And we ask for that more than anything. And we ask for help to live out the truth of what we see this morning. By His power for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
So we'll look at the first verse, and after we look at this first verse, it's going to open a door for a whole lot of context-establishing study. So buckle up, we're going, to, we're going to do a lot of work this morning. So verse 31 says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, that seems innocuous enough, right? But remember what we have seen over the last two messages from Matthew 5. Jesus is going after not the law of God to discredit or to overturn it, but rather He's speaking to and about the teaching of the rabbis, the traditions of the Jewish people, which have been established over 1,500-1,600 years or so since the law was given on Mount Sinai before Him. So when He says, it was also said, He's referring to the traditional teachings of the Jewish rabbis and teachers. And what do they teach? As what they say, what the law means. They say, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, the rabbis taught from the law of God, so we need to see where they get this in the law. So here's where we're going to start establishing context. The previous two messages dealt specifically with commandments, right? You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. This teaching of Jesus on divorce that he's quoting from them comes directly out of the adultery thing. So we just came out of you shall not commit adultery. It's just natural that he would move into marriage from there, right? Marriage and divorce because they go hand in hand. So there's a, there's a passage that's being cited here and it's going to help frame us up this morning because this is what the teachers of the law and the rabbis were drawing from. It's, it's Deuteronomy 24. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4 to help establish this context where Jesus is talking about what the rabbis are teaching here. Okay, listen. <sighs> Buckle up. When a man takes a wife, this is from the law. From, from, this is Moses speaking to the people as they're getting ready to move into the promised land. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. You see what's going on here? Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then... Her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, that's a whole lot of stuff, okay, in those four verses. But did you see there in verse 1, let me go back there, where it says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. That's what the rabbis are quoting. That's what the rabbis are using. That's what's being referred to here. Now put a pin in that, okay? And we'll come back to that after we look at some other things. We're going to look at a lot of other things real quick before we come back to this. I just want you to see this is what the rabbis were using this certificate of divorce statement from, okay? But we'll come back to it. <clears throat> so before we look at this certificate of divorce, let's see what we can see through a quick quick as I can, survey of the biblical view and explanation of marriage. And where do we go if we want to know original intent usually in the Bible? We go to Genesis because Genesis is how God created things. It's laid out exactly like He wanted them to. What we're going to do is look at Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. 
to get a picture of what marriage was originally intended to be by God. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Can I get an amen? Yeah. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, to say the least, there's a lot to see here. So let's look at some particulars quickly to see how God put the first couple together. So He had made Adam out of the dust of the earth. He had been the only human and then God said that it wasn't good for him to be alone and that God would make a helper fit for him. And you know what? Just time out. If you're a female and you're sitting here and the phrase helper for him makes you uneasy, I just want to address that for a second. Does God give us bad gifts? No. Are God's intentions and designs best and good? I'm just going to leave that there. So, then God brought the beasts to Adam for Adam to name them. And as that happened, it was clear that none of them were to be his counterpart. Thank God. That's good. So God put him to sleep. Divine anesthesia. And he took a... It's not that funny. God put him to sleep. Let's just go back to that. And he took a rib out of him and made a woman out of that rib. Now you ask me, do I believe that? Yes. I believe that literally. I believe that's exactly what God did. I don't believe this is metaphorical. The language is not metaphorical. It's historical. And it sounds ludicrous to us. And this is what God did. Okay? Then God brought the woman to the man. Then Adam literally bursts out into song. The format of what he says is poetic. It's song-like and he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I'm sure we don't get the full beauty of what he's saying and I'm sure we don't get the full emotion of what he's saying. But he had to just be amazed. I mean, he just had to be slack-jawed, weak-kneed going, Whoa, hubba, hubba, hubba. This is nice. This is not an elephant. This is not a... Whoa, no. This is like nothing I've ever seen before. And he recognized that this woman was one with him. He recognized that she had been taken out of him, from him. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Whoa, man. So you have here the concepts of oneness... And complementarianism. Okay? She came out of me, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she completes me. To quote Jerry Maguire, which is not inspired, by the way. You should never watch that movie. It's awful. I mean that. 
So their life together is a shared life and they complete each other. And then those, those concepts are summed up in verse 24 which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now this is not Adam talking. Okay? So Adam's thing stopped there with because she was taken out of man. And then we've got this commentary on what had happened. Okay? So this is God's Word here in verse 24. The verse before was God's Word, but it was Adam speaking. This is God speaking. Okay? Inspired commentary that Moses would have put in having received it directly from God. So Adam wouldn't have said anything about leaving father and mother because he didn't have any of those, right? He didn't have a mother and a father. God was his maker, his creator. In that aspect, he was his father. But Adam didn't know anything about mother and father until Cain and or Abel showed up. And I only point that out because we need to see that God is making a definitive statement here in verse 24. A man and a woman come together after leaving their parents and the man is to hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now see that. One man, one woman cleaving to one another and in so doing become one flesh. And something you're going to hear over and over and over again this morning is one man, one woman become one flesh. That is marriage. Biblical marriage. God-ordained, God-orchestrated marriage. That is God's original design for marriage. So one man plus one woman equals one shared life in God's economy. One plus one equals one. When one man marries one woman, they become one flesh. Two become one in marriage. As time progresses, it doesn't take long for the human race to miss this standard and mess this up. So sin comes in, we know about that. And after sin's introduced into the human race, we see things progress just within a few generations for the first twist in the marriage scene. Adam and Eve have Cain. Cain takes a wife, has some kids, one of which is Enoch. Enoch has some kids, including a guy named Mahuadjuel, who has a kid named Methusael, who had a kid named Lamech who happened to be Noah's father, by the way. And then we see this in 419. Chapter 4. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the the name of the other was Zillah. This is the first mention of someone having more than one wife in Scripture. Now, what I want you to see from that is the Scripture addresses polygamy. It does not endorse it. What was God's original design? One man joined to one woman who become one flesh. And I just want to point that out because people bring stuff up about polygamy and say that the Bible condones it. It never condones it. Addresses it and talks about it and says that it happened, but it never condones polygamy. But we see it when people do what they do. So the Bible does not condone polygamy. Let's move on from there. So as the first five books of the Bible progress, there are laws and rules for marriage, including what we saw from Deuteronomy 24. We'll get back to that in a second. Also seen in these precepts dealing with marriage, we see the seventh of the Ten Commandments, which we discussed last week. What was that? We see it twice in the Pentateuch. You shall not commit adultery. And what was adultery? A married person having relations with someone who is not their spouse. 
And we saw last week that Jesus made clear that this went down to heart level, not just a physical act. So there's a built-in protection for marriages in the Ten Commandments as well. God would also spend a lot of time all through the Old Testament calling the nation of Israel His beloved, His wife throughout the history of Israel through the Old Testament. I won't cite the specific verses, but God calls Israel His beloved, His betrothed, His bride, His adulterous wife, and refers to Himself as her husband for the nation of Israel. And while God does deal with them for their sins and He does rebuke them, He also says this in Isaiah 54, 6-8, through For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? God will not, listen, listen, God will not divorce His wife. If you don't believe me, read the book of Hosea, especially the first three chapters, which give a graphic illustration of an adulterous wife being bought back by her husband because God wanted to show Israel what He had done for them. God will not divorce His wife. David read this morning in Malachi 2 what we looked at several months ago. The NASB version of the Bible, New American Standard Bible, has this to say different than the... I don't have it up there. But the NASB says God hates divorce. Now for time's sake, let's jump to some of what the New Testament says about marriage. And again, we don't have time to be exhaustive today, but let's give a good effort of getting a basic idea of what the New Testament says about marriage. One of the clearest statements comes from Hebrews 13.4. Just one verse amongst a list of other things. Listen, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now keeping in mind God's original design as marriage being one man and one woman who have become one flesh, we see here that this institution, this design of marriage is to be held in honor among all. All. Single, married, all. You don't have to be married to hold marriage in honor. It's supposed to be held biblically in honor by all. Marriage is honorable and is to be seen as such by everyone. And then the writer of Hebrews says the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Now this means a lot, but it at least means that the relations in the marriage are to be kept pure between the husband and the wife. And that's shown by the next statement which says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Now there's also specific instructions for the husband and wife and that's always in singular in these instructions by the way. The husband, the wife in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. David read this morning from Ephesians 5 in the public reading and we'll come back to all of those later. But for time's sake... Let's let what we've said to this point be sufficient. I know I didn't spend a lot of time in the New Testament. We will later. 
Marriage is designed by God to be one man and one woman becoming one flesh. And since God set it up this way, it should be honored by all. Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy 24. And as we go back there, with the clarity that we have of seeing God's original intention and design, God's design all through Old Testament history, and a little brief peek into New Testament history, which brings us up to today, let's look back at this passage. In our Matthew passage from today, Jesus said that it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now is that what's actually said here? Does God give provision for divorce certificates? Well, yes, He does. And by the way, the certificate was given as a protection to the woman so that she would have something to say, this is why my husband divorced me, so that she wouldn't have to be set out on her own or that she couldn't just, it wouldn't just be her word. She would have an official document that establishes with at least two witnesses, my husband put me out because of this. Okay? It was for her protection more than anything. But that's not what we're talking about here. What was actually said? Let's read it again. When a man takes a wife and marries her... Now, but before we get into that, watch the progression here of the ands. And, 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 and. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife." After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the rabbis of Jesus' day took this passage and they were miles apart on what it meant. Commentator R.H. Muntz says this, In the Deuteronomy passage, 24.1, the cause for divorce is said to be something indecent about her. Okay, The ESV translates that as some indecency in her. Okay? Now, there was a rather strict school, he says, of Shammai, a rabbi, who understood that to be unchastity and nothing else. This indecency. The more liberal school of Rabbi Hillel took it to be anything that might displease her husband, such as burning a dinner or being disrespectful. Now, these are official rabbinic teachings. And that's how they're... Translating indecency. It is reported that Rabbi Akiba taught that finding a woman more attractive than one's wife constituted something indecent and allowed divorce. So this is just the spectrum of how they're interpreting some indecency. But the question is, is that the thrust of this statement in Deuteronomy? And the plain answer is no. As a matter of fact, they're missing the whole point of the passage when they focus on this one statement. John Stott comments on this passage. I'm going to read a lengthy quote from him, okay, because it's, it's too good to not read. All of these rabbis had garbled versions of the Mosaic provision, typical of the Pharisees' disregard for what Scripture really said and implied. They laid their emphasis on the giving of a divorce certificate as if this were the most important part of the Mosaic provision, and then referred to both the certificate and the divorce as commands of Moses. 
A careful reading of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, Stott says, reveals something quite different. To begin with, the whole paragraph hinges on a long series of conditional clauses. This may be brought out in the following paraphrase. He paraphrases it this way. After a man has married a wife, if he finds some indecency in her, and if he gives her a divorce certificate and divorces her and she leaves, and if she marries again, and if her second husband gives her a divorce certificate and divorces her, or if her second husband dies, then her first husband who divorced her is forbidden to remarry her. The thrust of the passage, Stott says, is to prohibit the remarriage of one's own divorced partner. The reason for this regulation is obscure, he says. It appears to be that if her, quote, indecency had so defiled her as to be sufficient ground for divorce, it was also a sufficient reason for not taking her back. He goes on to say, it may also have been intended to warn a husband against a hasty decision because once made it could not be rescinded and or to protect the wife against exploitation. For our purposes here, he says, it is enough to observe that this prohibition is the only command in the whole passage. There is certainly no command to a husband to divorce his wife, nor even any encouragement to do so. All there is instead is a reference to certain necessary procedures if a divorce takes place, and therefore at the very most a reluctant permission is implied and a current practice is tolerated." End of quote. So they took this passage with all these conditional statements, if this, if this, and this, and they took one phrase out of it about writing a certificate of divorce and they made that writing a certificate of divorce the command of the passage. That's called eisegesis. That's called making the text say what you want it to say. So what Stott is saying is that the Deuteronomy passage which the scribes and the rabbis were bickering about was not even about what they were bickering about. They plucked out one statement about writing a certificate of divorce and disregarded the rest of the passage. And in so doing, they also disregarded the fact that God intended marriage to be what? One woman, one man who become one. So you've heard it said, if anybody wants to divorce his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But Jesus has something different to say. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, alrighty then. That escalated quickly, didn't it? Jesus doesn't enter into the indecency debate, but instead comes back to God's intentions and purposes. And that purpose is for one man and one woman to become one and share the rest of their lives together. But he makes it even more clear that anything else is not just undesirable, but that it leads to sin. His authoritative but I say to you statement says that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality... And let's talk about that for just a second. Sexual immorality in the marriage breaks the covenant. And the covenant that this man and this woman made together with God was forsaking all others. That's that's not biblical. That's our vows that we say. But I'm going to be one with you for the rest of my life. And I'm not going to be in relations with anybody else, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. So adultery breaks that covenant. And when that covenant is broken, can it be repaired? The word is absolutely. It can be. Is there permission granted if a spouse is unfaithful to divorce? Yes, that's clearly what this is. 
Is it prescribed that if your spouse cheats on you, you have to divorce them? No. But it is the one provision that Jesus gives for a divorce. And His authoritative, but I say to you statement makes that clear. But He says, it's not just wrong to divorce... But if your indecency clause leads to a divorce that's not because of sexual immorality, then that divorced woman will be committing adultery and her new husband is committing adultery with her. Oh, my word. That's big time. That's serious stuff. Which is to say that God doesn't recognize your divorce as even having happened. Your certificate of divorce didn't undo the marriage. Now there's a passage in Matthew 19 that amplifies this thought quite a bit. Let's look at it in light of what we see here. Matthew 19 verses 3 through 9. And Pharisees came up to him. Now this is, you know, later on in Matthew. We'll get to this sometime. I don't know when it'll be. Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So now we've got both parties. Clearly, the divorced person who got divorced and the person who instituted the divorce, who started the divorce, now we see that they're committing adultery too if they marry somebody else. So both spouses commit adultery unless the divorce was for sexual immorality. The Pharisees came to Jesus to test Him, it says, and they ask about divorce. And their question sounds a lot like what Jesus is addressing in our passage from today. They ask if it's lawful to divorce a woman for any cause. And what does Jesus do? He goes back to Genesis. And then He magnifies the original intent even more by saying... Jesus' words, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they ask, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus' answer, well, he says it wasn't a command but a concession given due to the hardness of their hearts. But that was never God's design. Never His intention. He knew it would happen, but he He did not design it that way. And here again, Jesus reiterates that divorce except for sexual immorality leads to adultery on the part of both spouses and the spouses that they will remarry if the divorce wasn't for sexual immorality. That's pretty plain, isn't it? Paul would echo this later in 1 Corinthians 7, 10-11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now we can complicate this with a lot of, well, things are different in our culture or maybe my situation is different or a thousand other caveats. 
But what we want to do with our passage today is to boil it down to its simplest. And there's not much boiling we can do because not much goes away when we boil it down. The plain, simple point of the passage is this. God hates divorce. And unless that divorce is for sexual immorality, it's not legitimate in God's eyes. Now, if that seems cold or hard, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. And I'm not going to say that coldly. I don't care what you think. I do care what you think. I passionately care about what you think. I genuinely care about you as a person, as an individual. And I passionately want to point you to Jesus. And when I point you to Jesus, this is what He says. The plain, simple fact is God designed marriage to be one man and one woman joined as one flesh for the rest of their lives. That is God's design and anything different leads to sin. And Jesus is making clear in His explanation of the law of God that the heart of any command on marriage or divorce strays from God's heart if it doesn't take that as it is. So what do we do with this? I wish we had more time to spend there, but we don't. Let's tie it all up if we can. Three application points. Three H's. Honor marriage. Hone marriage. And hallow marriage. Honor, hone, and hallow marriage. That's our application points today. First, honor marriage. It is the responsibility and the command for every believer in Jesus Christ to have a proper grasp of how they feel about marriage. It's up to you. Everybody sitting in here this morning that names the name of Jesus, you have to have a clear idea about what the Bible teaches about marriage and how you feel about that. And your feeling is supposed to be honor. In our day and time, as the culture tries to undo the biblical paradigm of marriage and put it together in their own image... We, as the church of Jesus Christ, have to hold God's design in the highest regard. And how do we do that? First, we know what the Bible says about it. And I hope we've covered that today. If you haven't heard it yet, marriage is one man and one woman joined together as one flesh for the rest of their life together. Anything else, anything that strays from that simple truth is not only a wrong definition of marriage, but is itself sin. You do not get to undo what God has done. You do not get to redefine what He has already defined. So know what the Bible says. Also, we are to hold marriage in high regard. That's what Hebrews told us to do. So we need to see it, And we need to speak of it in honorable terms. I don't care if you're single, married, divorced. Marriage is to be held in honor with our words and our actions. Biblical marriage. It's a big deal. And we need to know that and we need to show that. Now I'm not saying that everybody should get married. That's not what I'm saying. We'll look at singleness as a gift of God when we get to Matthew 19 because Jesus addresses that there. But I'm saying that even if you're single 
Even if you're a kid, you need to look at married people and you need to be amazed. Why? Because God says to do that. You need to look at married people and praise God for marriage. If you have a married mom and dad in your home, you should be thankful and ask God to help your mom and dad stay together and work on their marriage. And if you're married, you need to make sure you are aware of the amazing gift that you possess. And let me say this, it is the hardest, best thing in the world. Yes, it's hard. Plainly, clearly, it's hard. And it's not always shiny and happy. But we have to hold it in high regard in obedience to the Word of God. Especially in our culture today. I hear people say, I'm never getting married. Why are they saying that? Probably because of what they see at home. Or the jokes that TV and movies are making about marriage. And what's the point? Let's just live together. We don't need a piece of paper. The church of Jesus Christ says a definitive no to that. And says we hold marriage in high regard. We'll get to why when we finish. So that was honoring marriage. The second application point is to hone your marriage. What does honing mean? It means to fine tune it, to get it right. And we all have a part to play to help married people stay married and to help married people improve their marriages. We can honor marriage like we just talked about. Listen to me, singles. Please pray for married couples. Please. I need your prayers. My wife needs your prayers especially. (laughs) Amen, Steve said. I don't know if you're talking about me or you, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Listen to me, singles who aren't married. Kids that aren't married. I don't guess any kids are married, but... Listen to me. Please, please hear me say this, singles and kids. There is a battle going on for your mom and dad's marriage. And it is serious. There is a battle going on for the marriages in this church. Please pray for us. Please But the main work to hone and to tune up marriages falls on the married couples. Husbands, you should know the biblical directives and commands for what it means to be a husband. Wives, you should know what the Bible says a wife should do. You should study these things together. You should pray over these things together. I say to my shame, you should discuss it with other people. Wives should hold wives accountable. Husbands should hold husbands accountable to the biblical standard. And as married couples, we should have Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3 on speed dial in our Bibles. And I just want to read through those things quickly. I want to read through those three passages, the the parts that deal with husbands and wives. Write these down. Master them. Memorize them. Meditate on them. And do them, married people. Listen, this is what the Bible says. I'm just going to read through these three passages real quick. Ephesians 5, 25-33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way... 
Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's Ephesians 5, 22-33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Did I start over there? Yeah, something's not right. I'm missing my Colossians. Here we go. Colossians 3, we'll get back to that Ephesians passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is Colossians 3, 18 through 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And 1 Peter 3, 1-7, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, listen to me, husbands and wives. You will spend your life together as one man, one woman, joined together as one flesh. You'll spend that life together trying to fulfill the scope of these few verses that we just read. And by the power of God's Holy Spirit, you can. And you will. And you'll see them in holy action in your life. So I'm not going to spend time explaining what this means. And if some of these words offend you or upset you, study it. Weaker vessel. Ha! You need to know what that means. You need to know what submission means. Men, you, know, you need to know what it means to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. And you need to immerse your heart, soul, mind, and strength in these truths. That's how you hone your marriage. And it is holy. Which leads us to our third point. We've looked at honoring and honing marriage. Now we're going to talk about, lastly, hallowing, hallow marriage. Why is this a big deal? Why does this matter? It is about God's glory, but how and why? Well, the whole point and purpose of marriage is not what we usually think it is. We make marriage about a lot of different things. We say it's an avenue to bring about children, and it is. Maybe we say it's about a tax break, and it is. It's a benefit, but it kind of misses the point. We say it's about our pleasure, and it is, but that's not the main point. How many times have I sat with a couple in a counseling office, and they said, God wants me to be happy. That's why I'm divorcing my husband. That's why I'm divorcing my wife. It's not the point. The main point, the very purpose of marriage is something that we've already seen today. So we're going to finish where we started. Let's look back at that passage in Ephesians that David read in our public reading this morning, which was Ephesians 
5, 25 through 33. And what we're looking for here is the purpose of marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul says this mystery of marriage is profound, and he is saying that it refers to Christ and The church. That means that marriage is meant to show the world what the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church, what that relationship looks like. The Old Testament showed God married to Israel and the New Testament shows the church as the bride of Christ. If we fast forward into the future, when things are consummated, Revelation 19... We're going to read verses 6 through 8. says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. On the final day, as we wait for that final day, when we see this that we're talking about, this profound mystery, when we see this mystery become sight, the visual that God gives us is the relationship between a husband and his wife. You see, we say it all the time, but here's the ultimate deal. Listen to me. Marriage is about the glory of God. And in our marriage relationships, we either make God look beautiful or we misrepresent Him in our marriage relationship. This is so much bigger than your hurt feelings or your foolish pride. Because marriage is about the glory of God. If you remember when we talked about murder... The big deal was murder is wrong and bad because when you murder somebody, you kill someone who was made in the image of God. That's the big deal about murder. And then Jesus got down to anger. And if you're angry with somebody, you're angry with somebody who's made in the image of God. So work hard, work quickly to reconcile things between you and your accuser even. Here, the big story is this. My marriage shows Jesus and the church to the world. So I have to hallow marriage, not just as a good public institution, but as ordained by God to show off His glory through us. There's a whole lot more at stake in your marriage than if your wife burns the toast or not. 
there's a whole lot more at stake than him leaving his socks on the floor. It's about the very glory of God. That's why Jesus says, Thus saith the Lord. You've heard it said, Write her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everybody who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery if she remarries somebody else. Now listen, let me tell you what we didn't spend a lot of time doing this morning. Discussing what ifs and this scenario and that scenario. Listen, I think it's pretty clear to see what the simple truth is. Marriage is one man and one woman becoming one flesh for the rest of their lives by God's doing. And any efforts to undo that lead to sin. But what do we do if we find ourselves in a situation today that's not in line with what we've seen today? What if you're divorced? What if your current marriage is on the fritz? What if you think your current marriage seems beyond repair? What if you're in danger? What if you have desires contrary to the biblical design of one man and one woman? There are a million things we could explore. Our only hope, our only plan of action has to be trusting God's Word and relying on the Spirit of God to empower us to do what God has decreed as right and good. There is a myriad, there are myriads of scenarios that we have not and will not address today that make things look complicated. But the plain and simple truth remains plain and simple. God's design for marriage, which has been clear since the beginning, has not and will not change. So what do we do? We throw ourselves upon His grace. We cry out for His power to adhere to the word that He has given. Which is exactly what we've got to do to be saved, isn't it? It's the gospel. We can't, but God can. We're helpless, hopeless wrecks and sinners. But God offers us the gift of His righteousness and His power if we will just cry out for it. You say, well, it takes two. And you're right. Does God have a plan if your spouse isn't lining up with your expectations? Absolutely He does. We talked about it in our Ephesians and our Colossians and our First Peter passages. That's why I said master those things. We must throw ourselves upon His grace. We must throw ourselves upon His power to adhere to the good word that He has given. We are all of us Husbands, wives, singles, kids, adults, we are all of us helpless sinners in need of the grace of God. And that is nowhere truer than in our marriages. And husbands, I'm going to throw the biggest ball of the day into your court. You lead in your home and you love your wife like Jesus loved the church. Get rid of your wants and your desires and your expectations and lay your life down. Or this does not work. You're a tyrant stomping around the house, kicking things and yelling at your wife and kids. That's not Jesus. 
The bulk of this falls on husbands. The bulk of it. And you can't do it. But the Holy Spirit of God through you can. And God has chosen this avenue, the marriage avenue, to display His glorious grace to the world and to us individually. Your marriage is a gospel presentation to the world. And again, hear me say this. If you never get married, you can be in the perfect will of God. There's no second-class citizens who are single because they never got married. That's not how it works. If you're divorced, you're not a second-class citizen. Maybe your life before now has been a wreck. Maybe you're the woman at the well that Jesus encountered in Samaria. You've had five husbands and the man you're with is not your husband. What did He do to her? He extended grace and He revealed Himself as the Messiah. And she went and she told everybody about what this prophet, this man had done for her. As far as the grace of God, it is not too weak to overcome whatever your past is. Come to Him. Ask for that grace and receive it to cover the sins of your past, to cover the mess that you feel like your past is, and to give you a hope for the future, whether it be as a single, whether it be in a marriage that's on the rocks, whether it's in a situation where you're a divorced person and you're looking how to forge forward, it's all in God's Word. And the grace of God is sufficient for every single one of those scenarios. Marriage is to be held in honor by all. See if we can do that by the power of God. Let's pray. God, I know that so many times we finish these hours and there are questions that are not answered. And God, I commend those questions to you this morning, this afternoon. 